Welcome to this Stroke Journey podcast, brought to you by the National Stroke Education Center at the University of Cincinnati, your premier source for comprehensive diagnostic and therapeutic stroke education from the pre-hospital and emergency settings through the ICU and rehabilitation. Please welcome today's host, Dr. Jordan Bonomo. Hello, thanks for joining us today. I'm Jordan Bonomo. I'm one of the emergency medicine and stroke physicians at the University of Cincinnati. And I'm here today as part of the National Stroke Education Center with one of our favorite guests, Dr. Chris Richards. Dr. Richards is an associate professor here at the University of Cincinnati in emergency medicine, and he's boarded in pre-hospital medicine. He is the architect of our pre-hospital stroke ambulance program, and he is a nationally recognized expert in pre-hospital medicine and carries particular expertise in stroke. And today's a, a pretty special event for us because an embargo is being lifted. It's not the political kinds of embargoes that are exciting. This is an academic embargo. It's things that Dr. Richards and I live for. So today, when the embargo is lifted, Dr. Richards gets to speak for the first time about a paper that he co-authored in the American Heart Association's proceedings today. Dr. Richards, talk to us. All right. Well, thanks again for having me. It's always a pleasure to, to join the group here. So today we lift the embargo on a white paper put out by the American Heart Association. It is called Recommendations for Regional Stroke Destination Plans in Rural, Suburban, and Urban Communities from the Pre-Hospital Stroke Systems of Care Consensus Conference. Wow, that's a mouthful, but essentially... Yeah, snappy it is, title. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> um, it is uh, updated recommendations on what pre-hospital care providers should do when they have a patient with suspected stroke. A couple of weeks back, you and I had a chance to talk about this very thing, and there was reference to some new guidance that was coming out. So the big brains in pre-hospital stroke got together and tried to solve this for those of us who struggle with this question all the time. This is a big deal. Uh, this is a political situation. It's complicated. There's data now. Uh, there, there are real numbers to support some of the conclusions I suspect you guys made. And for someone who directs ambulances to go to certain institutions based on the type of stroke I suspect, the time since onset, I'm really interested in the key findings of this white paper. So can you take us through the most important findings and, and what you think is going to change our practice? Yeah, and I, I would encourage listeners to take a look at the entire article. A lot of the front matter is really interesting in terms of background about stroke systems of care, hospital capabilities, some of the considerations when it comes to rural suburban, urban environments. But the really meat of the, the paper is what EMS systems, hospitals, EMS providers should do when uh, encountering patients with acute stroke. The paper itself approaches that system of care from acknowledging hospital capabilities, EMS system capabilities, and really at the root of it, what's best for the patients. And Balancing all those factors, even in an environment where there are a lot of different viewpoints and interests, is reflected in this paper that ultimately is patient-centered, and that's also reflected in the number of professional organizations um, that have signed on to this paper as support. All right, so so take us through what you think is maybe the, the most important or salient takeaway piece, if you can boil it down to one. Ultimately, and this is also coming from a bit of an EMS perspective, but ultimately the decisions that have to be made are ones that are best done locally. And bringing all the stakeholders to the table from the hospitals, the stroke centers and their capabilities to the EMS provider agencies and EMS practitioners themselves can give a sense from an operational perspective what that means for patients. Now, ultimately, and probably one of the highlights that will come from this paper is that the actual transport distances from scene to the different levels of care are more codified. 
and they're actually stratified by the three different geographic locations. So for rural environments, and I should take a step back to say that this is not only geography, although geography is defined in the paper, but it also encompasses what is the stroke center capabilities. So if it's a region that maybe the population density puts it as a, as a suburban population density, but there is one acute stroke ready hospital in the entire region, well, you may, may want to consider yourself a rural. But in those situations where rural is kind of the stroke system of care environment, the recommendation is if a comprehensive stroke center is within 60 minutes of the scene, then that would be the preferred destination if there is no other stroke center within 30 minutes beyond that. And then it kind of goes from there in terms of incorporating thrombectomy stroke uh, centers as well. That's a huge shift. So 60 minutes is a big range for rural that we didn't have in the past, right? If I remember, it was get to the closest hospital that can provide care. Hopefully, they'll have a thrombolytic, and then they'll move the patient downrange if needed. But you're saying now we may bypass some of those smaller hospitals, which may have thrombolytics available, but not more comprehensive care. Is that right? Yeah, that is right. So the, the idea is to minimize that interfacility transport as, as much as possible. Now, that, of course, balances a couple of different things, right? So it balances what you just said in terms of that additional transport time may have the potential of increasing the time to thrombolysis. However, there is some data, and this is, again, where it comes back to a local question, that uh, comprehensive stroke centers across the board, on average, have shorter door-to-needle times. Now, again, this is all very local, and one of the key points of the paper is that transparency and data and time reporting and a regional CQI is important to really know what your stroke system of care is doing. That's really interesting. When you guys looked at the data in trying to, to structure this paper, what were some of the data points that jumped out? So you said that comprehensive centers may have faster door-to-needle times, right? What did you find out about interhospital transfer times? Are they as long as they feel so there, there are multiple studies now showing that that interfacility transport time is long. There are, there are several papers um, that, that show that that interfacility transport time, the median time is in the two-hour range. So it's about 120 minutes with a, obviously a tail on each side. And I should probably disclose that I'm part of an uh, AHRQ-funded study that is looking specifically at interfacility transport times for acute stroke patients. Some of our, our baseline data is very consistent with that. Um, that these are long interfacility transport times. Now, Interestingly enough, in the, in the white paper that we're talking about, does actually acknowledge this, that in the era of COVID, with PPE and cleaning off ambulances and these sort of things, that transport time uh, may have gotten longer. We, we don't have data on that, um, but it was certainly theorized at the beginning of the pandemic sure. that uh, if there all other things being equal, going to a comprehensive stroke center maybe a preferred transport destination in and of itself. Yeah, well, it, it stands to reason that the times would be increased simply the burden of the PPE and the management of the aircraft and the cleanliness. That's actually fascinating for me. So as, as someone who directs patients from other institutions into institutions that have comprehensive care, and then we talked about stroke-ready centers and thrombectomy-ready centers, just walk us through really quickly, what are the center designations that you guys are using in this white paper um, so that we can all be on the same page? The, the way that I, that I usually express this and when I speak to EMS practitioners as well, I kind of break it down into very simple categories. So an acute stroke-ready hospital is a hospital that can give IV, IV thrombolytics and then transfer the patient. A primary stroke center can give IV thrombolytics and then admit all but really the most complex of patients. 
thrombectomy capable stroke center can do the IV thrombolytics, they can admit patients, and then they can do endovascular therapy for large vessel occlusion. And then a comprehensive can do IV thrombolysis, admit the patient, endovascular treatment, and then uh, treat hemorrhagic stroke in a neurosciences ICU setting. Now, obviously, there are some complexities, but that's usually how I think about it. Got it. So the patients who would go to a stroke-ready stroke or stroke-capable, is that what you said? Stroke acute stroke-ready hospital. Acute stroke-ready hospital. I'm still learning this nomenclature. I've been doing this for 15 years. All right. So acute okay. stroke-ready stroke hospital. They can give thrombolytics. If it's not an LVO, they can keep the patients. Acute stroke-ready hospitals may have the capability to admit stroke patients, but, not but they don't have to. Okay. All right. Great. So do you see any major practice changes coming? So the first one that you described, so potentially bypassing closer centers for a comprehensive center um, or a more capable center within 60 minutes is a really big deal. Do you see any other major practice changes coming out of this white paper if it's adopted in its current form? The transport times are going to have important implications in how EMS medical directors, um, stroke advisory committees, hospital committees, essentially stroke systems of care look at pre-hospital uh, protocols, and destination is going to be a very important one. There are some other um, recommendations about a sophisticated approach that EMS practitioners can take to evaluating the patient, because there's actually some language about EMS practitioners asking questions of their patients about thrombolysis eligibility, endovascular uh, capability, really coming back to the question of what was the last known normal um, and do they have any clear contraindications? Now, that's a, a little bit beyond probably what's, what's written, but a lot of kind of what's encompassed in the white paper is to think about what are the patients that we are uh, potentially uh, transporting. Okay. So I have, I have two questions in this, I think, still. One is you guys authored something that has some controversy in it. Who did you upset with this? <laughs> you know, interestingly enough, a lot of the professional organizations reviewed it and support it. Now, there is obviously a, a middle ground that when the rubber hits the road, literally and figuratively, um, you know, there will be some interesting conversations to be had. The transport time, I think it's going to be an interesting um, operational uh, venue, really how um, systems see their environment in terms of stroke resources, I think is going to be important as well. The role of the thrombectomy-capable stroke center, I think, is going to be important as well. There is language in the recommendations, especially when thinking about an urban environment where there are um, theoretically a lot of resources when it comes to advanced stroke care, um, how the thrombectomy-capable stroke centers work into these stroke systems of care. Okay. I've never written anything important enough to be embargoed. And we don't embargo a lot of stuff. It does, you know, most of our journals don't embargo things. Some of it has to do with timing around meetings and stuff. But generally, embargoes are reserved for big, important contributions that want to be coordinated in their release. We want to coordinate press releases, multiple societies at the same time. Trying to impress upon our, our listeners here why this is so important that it needed to be embargoed. Can you give us that 50,000-foot view of this? What does this really represent, and why is it such a big deal? It's, it's a big deal because it represents, it, it codifies, it extends the recommendations from really the, the communities that have a strong interest in promoting the best patient care that we can in the pre-hospital setting for stroke in a way that is going to change the way we at least think about pre-hospital routing and acute stroke care, to be perfectly honest. It's going to shift the landscape. I think it will. It's going to change the map. <laughs> I'm going to keep working on EMS 
analogies here. I like it. Dr. Richards, thank you so much for your time. It's really exciting for us at the NSCC to be able to talk to you and release this on the same day that an embargo is being lifted. Congratulations on your contribution to the science in the field. It's just uh, another feather in that cap that we're seeing grow with you and we're proud of you and really appreciate your contribution, sir. Well, I appreciate that. Obviously, this was a great experience for all of us. Um, you know, clear acknowledgments to the the lead authors and the, and the folks really kind of driving the project. And it was exciting to be a, a member of the writing group in general and to kind of share some of my thoughts as we develop the statement. Yeah. Driving the project, I heard that. E EMS and ambulances, man. <laughs> Congratulations. All right, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you guys for listening and partaking in this NSEC podcast. Thanks for listening today. This Stroke Journey podcast is a collaboration between the National Stroke Education Center, M. Craig International, and MedEd On The Go. For more comprehensive, high-quality educational resources for healthcare professionals, please visit strokejourney.com.